Let's turn to the book of Micah in the Old Testament, almost the end of the Old Testament. The prophecy of Micah. This book is one of the favorites of many among the minor prophets. This man, Micah, was a contemporary of the great prophet Isaiah. And his book is of a similar style. And sometimes this book is called, in fact, Isaiah in miniature. Because it's a much briefer uh, presentation of the same message, essentially, as the prophecy of Isaiah. And the theme of this little prophecy is found in the meaning of the prophet's name. I hope you have a Bible that helps you with the meaning of Hebrew names. For these names are often very, very significant. You remember that in the book of Genesis, uh, the man who gained fame as the world's oldest man, his name was a prophecy. I wonder if all of you know that. In fact, uh, when Methuselah's father, uh, when, when Methuselah was born, his father, Enoch, learned something that he never forgot. And it was hidden in the name of Methuselah. Methuselah was the oldest man that lived. He lived 969 years. And uh, his name means, when he dies, it will come. And the year he died, the flood came. Now, you see, that shows something of the meaning of Hebrew names. And this man's name was Micah, which means, who is like God? Who is like Jehovah? And therefore, he's, and this is his repeated question everywhere this man went. Evidently, this is what he said. Who is like Jehovah? Who is like God? Until... Uh, people began to call him this. There's some suggestion that this may even be a nickname that was given to this man because this was what he said. You can imagine people looking around as Mike is coming up the street and and they say to themselves, so here comes old who is like God. (laughs) Micah, who is like God? And this is what he's talking about in this book. And therefore the theme of this book is God-likeness. Now, I didn't design it this way, but uh, some of you who were here this morning will remember that that's what we talked about this morning from the, from the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, was God-likeness. And that this is the great message of God to the world today, is how to be like God, how to be God-like. And I think it's very instructive that the Holy Spirit, in his superintending wisdom, has put these two messages together today so that we can see that the New Testament and the Old Testament teach the same truths in different ways. And that's what makes the Old Testament so enlightening to us. If you don't understand the New Testament, then read the Old Testament. It's much easier. And you'll get the truth from that. Now, who is like God? That's the theme of, of Micah. Remember, remember the story that comes from ancient Greece of the philosopher Diogenes who went around with a lantern looking for an honest man. And all through the day, in broad daylight, he carried his lantern around to arouse curiosity. And when anybody asked him, what are you doing with a lantern in broad daylight? He'd say, I'm looking for an honest man. 
Now, this is Micah's search. He was a prophet who went abroad in, in the land of, uh, of Judah, uh, contemporary of Isaiah, as he tells us, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And Micah went around looking for a godly man, looking for godliness, godlikeness. And he didn't find it. And therefore the story of his search is the story of this book. Now it's divided into three parts. The first chapters, the first three chapters, give us the failure of the nation. Uh, we get this theme in many of the prophets, remember. But here is the picture of the want of godliness, the lack of godliness. And then there comes a wonderful section in two chapters, chapters 4 and 5, that is a vision of the future one, or a vision of the one who is godlike. That's a predictive section that looks forward to the coming of, of Christ, the Messiah. And then the last three, uh, three sections, three chapters, give us the pleadings of God to the nation, or what we might call the way to godlikeness. Now that gives you a brief division of the book, and as we go through it, I think you'll see what I mean. Let me just quickly pass through some of these sections. In the first chapter, the, the theme of this book opens with a magnificent, majestic picture of God striding forth in judgment against this nation of Judah. Because of their utter failure to be godly, even though he'd provided them with everything it takes to be godly. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> That's our problem, isn't it? Why aren't we godly? We have all it takes in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, this book comes right home to us because we're in the same boat. Now, here's the problem. In uh, the first uh, section from verse 2 down through verse 7, you have a beautiful poetic picture of God moving out. Behold, the Lord is coming forth out of his place, and he'll come and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will be cleft like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And all this is for the transgressions of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And then he, he picks out the capitals of these two lands. What's the transgression of Jacob? Why, well, it's Samaria. That's the capital, the heart of the nation. And what's the sin of the house of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, he says, I'll make Samaria a heap in the open country, just a rubbish place, a place for planting vineyards, pour down her stones into the valley, and so on. Now, all of this is a picture of the armies of Assyria, which within a hundred years would sweep across the countryside and absolutely demolish everything there. And uh, it's God's judgment. That's what the prophet says. Now, in uh, verses uh, 10 through 16, you have something very interesting, though it's uh, hard to see in your English version. Uh, these prophets uh, were punsters. They say a pun is the lowest form of humor. But uh, it's hard for us to see how many times the Bible has puns in it, because we don't understand Hebrew. 
But if you read the original Hebrew, you'd see that there is pun upon pun here in the names of these cities that the prophet mentions, which start with verse 10. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all. Now, Gath means weep. And so he plays on that name. And all the way through, he picks up the name of the city and then ties the judgment of God in with it. So it would read something like this. In Weep Town, weep. In uh, Dust Town, roll thyself in the dust. That's what uh, uh, Aphra means. Bethle Aphra means dust. In Bethle Aphra, roll yourselves in the dust. And then in Beauty Town... Beauty will be shame. That's the meaning of safer, beauty. In Zainan, which means march, he says in march town, they'll march not forth. In uh, neighbor town, they'll end up with a useless neighbor. In bitter town, they will grieve bitterly. And uh, then in verse uh, uh, 13, you have Lachish, which means horse, horse town, the one horse town. And in horse town, he says, O inhabitant of horse town, bind the chariot to the horses. You see how he's playing on these words as he goes on down through. Now, chapter 2 goes on to picture the utter destruction of the people, including the rulers and the prophets and the women and the children, all the way through. It's a very, very vivid picture. I'm not going to read it, but you read it if you haven't already yourself. And in chapter 3, you get the reason for this condign judgment, this severe, uh, total judgment of God. You see, Micah has been seeking for godliness, and he looks where he might expect to find it. He looks among the rulers of the nation, the representatives of God, the delegated authority within this nation. And what does he find? Well, he finds corruption and oppression and bribery and injustice everywhere and sighing and uh, uh, crying because of misrule and corruption all the way through. In other words, Micah exposes the mess in Jerusalem. And he says, this is the reason why God is visiting judgment on this people. Those who have been given the authority to act in God's stead have forgotten that they're responsible to God. Now, this always touches us, doesn't it? For whenever we're put in a position of authority, we're, we're told to remember that we also have an authority over us. This doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference whether you're uh, an authority in the church, an elder, or in the city, the mayor, or a councilman, or if you've just been elected the president of your class, or... Uh, the head of your group, or the secretary, or the treasurer. The New Testament reminds us, remember, that if we, that servants, uh, that masters are to remember that they have a master in heaven as well. And uh, God holds all authority responsible to him. Therefore, the man who forgets this is the man who turns to use his power for his own advantage. And that's what had corrupted the nation. And uh, the uh, prophet gathers it all up for us in verse 11 of the third chapter. He says, its heads, that is its rulers, give judgment for a bribe. 
its priests teach for hire, and its prophets divine for money. There's all three classes of the rulers of the nation. There's the spiritual rulers, the civil rulers, and the moral rulers. Now, these are the ones who should have been godly, but they're the most ungodly because they fail to recognize that whenever a man is in an office of any kind, it's to represent God. Remember that. Even you young people in your offices in school, that's true. You represent God in that office. Paul declares the powers that be are ordained of God. And that doesn't stop with just civil government. That goes down anywhere, to any level. And he calls them the ministers of God for good. And when rulers, civil or spiritual or moral, recognize they're representatives of God, there's always good government. But when they forget, then there's corruption and oppression and bribery and agony and tears. Now in chapters 4 and 5, in the passage of wonderful exalted vision, the prophet lifts up his eyes and he looks across the centuries, past the coming of Babylon, past the rise of the great uh, eastern empires of Greece, past the Roman empires and the days of the Caesars, past the Middle Ages with Martin Luther and the rise of the Reformation and John Wesley, past our own day even, our 20th century. And through the mists of the years, down across the running centuries, this prophet sees the coming of one who is godlike, And he foretells his coming. Now this is one of the most beautiful messianic passages in the scriptures. Listen to these words. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And then it narrows to a person. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. That's a day yet to come, isn't it? And the nations will never forget how to make war. Never obey this word to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks till the one who knows how to rule in godliness comes. Now, the rest of the chapter 5 uh, goes on to describe uh, what, uh, how Israel shall be gathered and shall ultimately defeat her enemies. The rest of chapter 4. And chapter 5 opens with a Another thought, the prophet says to Israel, now you are walled about with a wall. That was a picture of the Assyrian army gathered around the city. Siege is laid against us. And it's also a picture, as we read these prophetic passages, of that day when a greater Assyrian army out of the north shall come against Israel. 
And the reason why it comes is given here in this verse. With a rod they strike upon the cheek the ruler of Israel. Now that's a a rather quick reference to the coming, first coming of the Lord Jesus when he stood before uh, Pilate and the rulers of the nation and you remember they struck him with a rod, struck him on the cheek and told him, prophesy who is it that's smiting you and mocked him, put a crown of thorns on his head and a robe of purple on him and bowed before him and mocked him they struck on the cheek the ruler of Israel now the prophet suddenly uh, uh, sees where this ruler is to come from. And this is one of the great predictive passages of the Old Testament. In verse 2, he says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days, or literally, from eternity. From eternity, from everlasting. Remember when the wise men came out of the east looking for the one who was born king of the Jews? They said to the rulers of Jerusalem, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? And the wise men said, You'll find him in Bethlehem. How'd they know? Well, because 700 years before Micah had said so. Thou Bethlehem, Ephrata, that is Bethlehem in the land of Ephrath, Thou Bethlehem, Ephrata, Though you're little among the cities of Judah, yet there shall come forth from you one who's to be the ruler in Israel, whose goings forth or whose origin is from of old, from everlasting. A mighty promise here. And then there's a parenthesis here in verse 3. He says, Therefore he shall give them up, that is the nation of Israel, until the time. And that's why Israel has been wandering in uh, in uh, defeat and uh, without a king and without a, a temple and without a sacrifice for centuries. He shall give them up for a time. They don't lose their identity. One of the wonders of the world is the nation of Israel that maintains its identity despite its dispersion among the nations. He shall give them up for a time until the time when she who is in travail is brought forth. And then the rest of his brethren shall return to the people of Israel. And then looking again at the one he saw coming out of Bethlehem, he says, he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Isn't it wonderful how these Old Testament prophets could see so clearly and see so far? 700 years down the corridors of time to the one who would fulfill these predictions to the letter. Rising out of obscurity, yet more than merely born in David's city, his goings forth are from everlasting, the God-man, the only godly man that ever walked on earth, the God-like one. This is to be God's true ruler, who in his own times, as Paul says, will show who is that blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, in chapters 6 and 7, in a passage of power and beauty, Jehovah turns to plead with his people and to show them the way to God-likeness. 
And this is an interesting dialogue here. We hear a lot about dialogue today. The fact that we need to talk with those with whom we're in opposition. Well, God has a controversy with his people. And he talks it over with them. And here we get that dialogue. The prophet says in chapter 6, Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the controversy of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will contend with Israel. Now that sets the stage. Now God speaks. And this is what he says. O my people, what have I done to you? In what have I wearied you? Answer me. What have I done to you? Why do you reject me so? Why do you turn me aside? And don't listen to me so. In what have I wearied you now? Tell me. I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of bondage, and I sent you before you Moses and Aaron and Midian, Miriam, and all my people remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened in Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord. Now, what do you think the people are going to say to that? Well, listen. Here's their answer, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? What do you want, God? What can I bring you? Do you want sacrifices? Is that what you want? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What do you want of me, God? Isn't this what people say so many times? What are you asking of me anyway? What do you want out of me? Now listen to God's gracious answer. One of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the answer, isn't it? That's walking with the Lord. That's the way to God-likeness, isn't it? To walk humbly with your God. After all, he's the only one who can make us godlike. But they fail to do this. And uh, so there comes the cry of judgment again, as God at last must wake them up to their folly and their weakness and their foolishness. And uh, there comes the resumption of the description of judgment. Until you come now to the last of chapter 7. And the prophet concludes with a message, this message with the most marvelous picture of God in the Old Testament. Verse 18. Notice how it starts. Who is a God like thee, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? You see, it isn't our failures that keep us from God. It's our clinging to them that does. It isn't our past sins that hide God's face from us it's the fact that we don't come to him with them that's the problem for who is a God like thee pardoning iniquity passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love 
He will again have compassion upon us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Thou wilt cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And as someone once put it, and then put up a sign that says, no fishing. (laughs) No fishing. Thou wilt show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as thou hast sworn to our fathers from the day of old. What's the way to God-likeness? Putting away our wickedness. Confessing our guilt before God. Looking to him to pardon our iniquities and cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Isn't that just what the New Testament said? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, how do you walk humbly with God? Well, John answers over in the New Testament. He says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, that is, if we walk in openness, in honesty, that's all. Don't try to hide anything from God. Don't pretend to be something you're not with him. Walk in the light, as he is in the light. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Micah's question rings in our ears. Who is like God? Well, the only one who's like God is the man who walks with the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God himself, the God-like one. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, our Father, for this look at out of these Old Testament pages, into thy heart of love. Even though in faithfulness thou dost judge thy people to make them aware of their foolish ways, yet thy heart is ever pleading, and beneath all the thunders of judgment, the dark facade of, of, of destruction is that heartbeat, Lord, of love and concern and readiness to forgive and to restore and to bring us back into fellowship with thee. Help us then to remember this question, who is like our God? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.